1986, Frank Miller completely changed the superhero genre with his update to the Batman mythos, The Dark Knight Returns. Targeting a strange new demographic of adult comic book readers, this graphic novel darkened a character made downright dorky by Adam West and company. This version of Batman was older, more realistic, and more tuned to the violent roots of the old Detective Comics series. It was a sea change in superheroes, and the beginning of a swell in Batman's popularity that would reach new heights a few years later in movie theaters. Both of your hosts have fond memories of poring over this book, but hadn't revisited it since the early 90s. So, we mixed up some screwdriver cocktails and sat down to discuss our latest read. Welcome to episode 61 of Toasting the Classics, The Dark Knight Returns. Welcome to Toasting the Classics, the podcast where we take something that people call a classic, drink something inspired by the classic, and then talk about it to see whether it's still a classic. My name is Dave MacArthur. And I am Clint Lanier. Welcome, everybody. Today we are going to be talking about Batman The Dark Knight Returns, or originally it was just The Dark Knight Returns. It's a Frank Miller joint. It was uh, Frank Miller when he was working for DC. He did a lot of freelancing for DC and for Marvel. Uh, Frank Miller wrote it. He penciled it. I think it was colored by his first wife. Oh, is that right? Um, Yeah, yeah. Lynn Varley did the color. Yeah, Lynn Varley. They worked together for almost 20 years, and they were married together for almost 20 years. Klaus Johnson did the inking, and John Costanza did the lettering. The the inker is the tracer, right? Yeah, yeah. So the penciler actually... It's just like in the car, like in a cartoon, a well, original cartoon before they had like computer animation. Now they would pencil in everything, kind of rough it out. But I mean, the rough drawings were good enough for the inker to then come over and trace it out so that it's not so rough. And so you've got and usually we have, have would have kind of layers. But essentially, he's the artist. It was originally released in four parts as a four part kind of mini series. Those were just regular size comic books, right? Those are just like the ones you get off the spin rack. Not really. Um, they were actually they they were actually so this is like I was just looking. It was nineteen eighty six, I believe, or eighty four. Yeah. yeah, it's February to February to June of eighty six. So what they did is they they bound these comic books were were stapled in the middle, right? There they had the long folds on them, and they're stapled in the middle and folded in the middle. This was actually bound. They were bound like a book. So each one was comic book thickness, but they had the glued laminate spine on them. And then okay. so it, it, it allowed them to have this really beautiful kind of laminate covers. And so they sold for three bucks, which is a lot of money in 86. Yeah. And comic books are still a dollar at the time. The stories seem long to me. The individual, like my, my book has cuts for like where each issue, yeah. original issue ended. And they seem like they would have been a really long issue. It seemed like you were right. getting more money also in terms of story you're getting a higher higher quality of product because the comic books were even in 86 are notoriously printed like pulp fiction books i mean just a really cheap cheapest kind of newsprint paper that you can find i said stapled and everything else this is a laminate a glued laminate square spine with this beautiful wraparound laminate cover and then the inside was just like what, if you've got the any of the graphic novels, the quality of the in, interior is exactly like what it would have been. I mean, it was super high quality, so it was three bucks, which is kind of cheap now by today's standard. This thing would have been like seven or eight dollars per issue, probably. But this is unheard of. I mean, it was a bit of a gamble on DC's part to to do that, but apparently it sold like crazy. I mean, they're upwards of a hundred thousand or something like that per issue. It was a big event too. I mean, they plugged it, like they told everybody mm-hmm. it was coming. I think. Frank Miller was already coming off big success with Daredevil. 
right? I, I'm, I'm trying to remember which one came first, but I think he did Daredevil. Yeah, Dare, Dare, Daredevil, Daredevil came first for sure, yeah. So this he was did. kind of a big deal. They invested it in a little bit. I remember there being lots of cheap knockoffs of this. Like I remember mm-hmm. they, Marvel did a, did a series and they actually called it the Arachnite for like Spider-Man. They tried to like- I re- Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Spider-Man cooler. And I was, I, even as like a 12 yeah. year old or whatever I was, I was like, that's lame. This is what made Batman cool, man. Batman was uh, yeah. lame for a long time. Well, let, let's just talk about, let, let's, for those who haven't read it, for those five of our five listeners, the one person who hasn't read this, the synopsis of the story is that we're looking at an alternative kind of history but it's a it's a future alternative future. It's set in the same timeline, so set in 1986. And what he does is he goes back and he says, "Well, you know, Batman's like 50 something years old, 55 years old, I think. He's been retired for 12 years. There's reasons for the retirement that are kind of alluded to. There's no exposition really on it. I love how everything, the, all of the backstory is completely alluded to. Some yeah, of which right. I've read this multiple times. And there are little things in there that I'm like, whoa, is that what's going on? Like, I was figuring out some things this time. And I was like, is that what that means? Is that what's happening here? It's it's very cool. Like the whole he retired because the second incarnation of Robin died, I guess would have been around 1983 in real world terms when that character was written up, Jason Todd. Yeah, Jason Todd. But there's also this allusion to sort of what happened in actually the Incredibles of all things, where people kind of people meaning civilians, like the, the the whole world community or society decided that they didn't want superheroes. And you see it in the commentary. We're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. Let's go back to the synopsis real quick and then we'll come we'll circle back to this. But the synopsis okay. is is a, it's a, a retired older Batman. He's like 55 years old which is seven right. years older than me. He keeps talking about how his heart's about to give out and everything else. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> Crud, I, I hope we with testosterone and, and vitamins, maybe I can keep it up a little longer than that. But in well, case, we're not, um, we're, not, we're not beating up 20 year olds and climbing. That's true. Yeah, that, that's true. But then he, he, he just, you know, there's so much crime in Gotham and it, it, it's, it's actually reading this book now is kind of prescient when you look at like all the defund the police and what that, what, what that sort of led to, like all of the, the crime and all this crazy stuff that's going on in society right now. Yeah. And so he, you've got that. You've got like a society that treats criminals like, like porositos, as we'd say here in, in the Southwest. Like, well, it's not their fault that they're criminals. Right. So let's just let's just slap them on the hand and let them go. Which is exactly what's going on, right? As a result, per, I don't know. As a result of this, but but, is it- but Miller Miller alludes that as a result of this, you've got rampant crime on the street. Um, stuff going on and so he's he just can't take it anymore and he comes out of retirement i was torn when reading it about thinking did he mean that yeah i mean it's just sort of a general moral rot i mean he's kind of he's kind of drawing on dirty harry and like taxi driver and like mm-hmm. that depiction of the big cities right. especially right. dirty harry i think he explicitly said that was an inspiration right. but in the in this world it also could be read as being because the superheroes have been 
removed from the equation. Well, I think so. I, I think so. But he like he really pushes that ideology about it's not the criminal's fault. You know, it's the fault of society. It's the fault of everybody else. Therefore, we can't blame the criminals. I mean, it really is a commentary on that. Now, I don't know if he's doing that for narrative effect or if he really believes that. I think it's really complicated because there's some of that. Obviously, there's some of that kind of like, oh, these days, you know, this moral corruption and, you know, but there's mm-hmm. also everybody, everybody's getting made fun of. I mean, no, nobody in this is coming out clean. Like every oh, no, single no. yeah, absolutely. The, the police are being lampooned. Hippies are being lampooned. Psychiatry is being lampooned. Superman, Dave being Superman, yeah. Ronald Reagan. You know, like yeah. nobody's good in this. Everybody's just. I think it's just supposed to be sort of satirical. I think it's magnifying existing flaws. But, but Ronald, the, Reagan, the, the, Ronald Reagan, for instance, is a really good. He's like an, a very extreme version, like a caricature of the actual Ronald Reagan. He's, <laughs> right. he's like the way people used to sort of make fun of him, just making him like completely just an actor and kind of like a bozo. And, and that's how everybody comes across. Robin's parents are constantly smoking pot. It's almost predictive, though. Again, we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're not helping the people. That one person who hasn't who hasn't read this, but he's talking, if he's making, if he's lampooning that ideology that, that you can't blame the criminals, again, he's being very prophetic because that's where we are now. Your, your DA there in Manhattan has been in the news quite a bit for letting people off the hook who have yeah. been very, very violent offenders. People did this in the seventies and then everything goes to hell and people are like, wait a minute, we should probably put criminals in jail. Everybody's saying <laughs> All the people yeah, that actually live in these neighborhoods. If, if I remember correctly, that attitude spawned Giuliani, who then, quote unquote, cleaned up the town. I mean, through through very extreme measures in what, the 90s? They booted him out. And, and it, it, so it kind of like, it's very, yeah, it's very cyclical, as you're saying. I like, I think yeah, you're, yeah, that's a great, great, great idea. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, it's a lot of the same issues that are going on. I, I actually just happened to watch Dirty Harry. It, it like came up on Netflix a couple of days ago and I was like, oh, I've never seen that. And I was watching and I was like, oh, that's the same story. It's yeah. like the same yeah. story. Yeah, what's right, going right. on? And I, and I imagine Frank Miller did not mention this in anything I read, but the whole mm-hmm. idea of the superheroes, like Green, Green Lantern, like flying back into space and, and Wonder Woman going back to her people and stuff like that. Yeah. It's literally like Atlas Trucked. It's like Ayn Rand philosophy yeah. going yeah, on. Sort of. That. You know, oh, the common people are like burdening these Ubermensch so much that they can't continue to help humanity. So they just yeah. fly away to space. It's not burdening. It's lack of appreciation, perhaps. And the only one that stayed was Superman because he became like a pawn. Like uh, Batman says, you know, he'll, he'll salute anything in a flag. What does he say? He'll answer to anybody with a flag or a badge. Okay. All right. Let's get back to the synopsis. Sorry. So what happens then? He, co- he, yeah. comes, out of re- he comes out of retirement uh, at the same time. Uh, there's Arkham Asylum and, and, and uh, Two-Face comes out of Arkham Asylum, creates a bunch of problems. Batman goes after him. At the same time, there's this kind of gang taking over Gotham City. It's called the, they're called the Mutants. He uh, eventually beats up the mutant leader. But through, throughout this, he's showing his age. The mutant leader basically almost, almost kills him because he, the right. mutant leader is like 20 years old and just a stud. And Batman's He's some kind of a superhuman. It's not clear yeah. why. Why are right. there mutants? I don't know why there are mutants, but Who apparently, knows, but although the rest of the gang doesn't act, they just seem to just be humans. They seem to but be the, just hu- human the leader, idiot. The leader yeah. seems to be some kind of monster. He, he kind of he reminded me of that guy on Mad Max uh, Road Warrior, the second movie, 
what was yeah, his name? Humongous. Um, humongous. Humongous. Yeah, humongous. humongous. Bit, that guy. Right, right. Definitely. You know, you know who he's patterned on. Actually, you know who the mutant leader is based on. Who's that? According, according to Frank Miller, is Clubber Lang in Rocky Three. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I, I don't remember that movie right. well enough. Today, but whatever. <laughs> that seems um, kind of cruel. Mr. T, but yeah, well, whatever. He had the same kind of attitude. I remember a line from there. It's like, so, Clever, what do you predict from this fight? He looks at the camera and he says, pain, lots of pain. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. That was my best. That was my best Mr. T. So, anyway. Um, right. uh, so, so flash forward, uh, he also has to, to go after the Joker. The Joker comes back, causes a bunch of mayhem. The Joker coming back seems to be caused by Batman coming back. It seems that, like the Joker was catatonic yeah. and not doing anything wrong, just sitting in the asylum. And then all of a sudden he sees Batman on TV and, and he's back and starts. That's, I don't know what he's trying to say with that part of the story. I don't, I, I don't either. About I, that a lot. I was like, I don't, so it's Batman's I, fault? That one I don't get. Yeah. Uh, we can come back. We can come back and talk to that. But then at the end, he finally has to, he has, finally has to fight Superman because Superman right. is ordered to, to put Batman down since he's like the last of the superhero type of thing. And, yeah. um, I won't spoil it for you. Big fight, big climax, and stuff like that. So Batman Superman fight at the end takes place amidst also a World War Three between the between the Soviets and the Americans. That's a pretty major yep. plot point as well. Over so, over sort of fictional Porto Maltese, which that's it. Reception. Yeah, that's the story. Yeah, that's the story. It might be on. time to discuss what we're drinking. Oh right, right, right. Okay, uh, so we're we're having a, a screwdriver, which is vodka and okay. orange juice. What, what kind of proportions did you use for yours? Or did you or, start throwing them together? I, yeah, I just kind of threw them together. Yeah, that's what I did. Because I was like, well, why am I looking this up? Like how to make yeah. a screwdriver? I think, it's, I think it's about probably one part vodka to maybe like three parts orange juice or something like that. You know? I think that's about what I did. Yeah. And I, and I did have to look up whether or not you're supposed to use ice. I really wanted to use ice. It seemed like it would yeah. be a lot better with ice. You know, essentially, I guess three ingredients. It's, it's vodka. OJ, and then you got ice and a little bit of melt water. It's the easiest thing you make. Now, let me let me tell you why I picked this drink. So, for those first hearing this podcast in the dystopian future, the way this this sort of works is is whoever suggests the potential classic, which I did, mm -hmm. also has right. to come up with with a, a drink that kind of sort of corresponds to whatever the classic is. Now, in Frank Miller's novel or graphic novel, rather, Batman is drinking. We're assuming it's whiskey. Because at the beginning he's he's drinking it with uh, with Gordon. Gordon mentions that you know that he finally likes the taste of whiskey or something. And then all these years he's been drinking ginger ale and telling everybody that it was champagne right. or something because it was Bruce Wayne. You know, it was Batman. He can do it. But I thought, well, let's let's go back in the archives and let's see what we can do for finding something kind of kind of fun. What I'm going to do is I'm going to share my screen. I'm going to take us back to 1966. Adam West. Is is playing our very first Batman on on the small screen. He's on the path of a guy called the Riddler. So the Riddler goes into this nightclub. This is the '66 swing in '60s, baby. Let's just see what happens here. He's walking into the nightclub. Can you hear it? It's Batman. Yeah, I can hear it. Okay. Anything I can Everybody do for you, sir? Check your tape. Ringside table, Batman. Uh, just looking. Thanks. I'll stand at the bar. I shouldn't wish to attract attention. As he says, wearing a Batman costume. Right. Everybody's dancing around him. 
crazy. This is totally where Austin Powers got their stuff from. Making his way, Batman's wicked, making his way to the bar. He's a stunning redhead. And orders. Ready? A large, fresh orange juice, please. Yes, sir. Your orange juice, sir. Batman special. Your vodka in that? <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to spoil the, the ending for, for you. You'll have to go and watch the, the, the entire clip. But there is yeah. something in it. There is something in it uh, after all. So that's where I get this drink. His, his drinking that orange juice, spiked orange juice, leads to him doing a, a dance that's become famous. Right. It's yeah, called the Bad Tuesday. That's right. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> I used to watch that Adam West show. I mean, I used to watch it a lot. It was on syndication. It was on every day after school. And I, I liked it. But Batman was not cool. Like from no. watching that show, Batman was not a cool character. Like I did not, there were toys and some of the comics I was aware of that were like a little more serious, you know, like mm -hmm. I, I thought the Batmobile was super cool. Um, mm -hmm. But that show was pretty much my idea of Batman. And I just was not into Batman until, <laughs> until right. it's completely, and then the film and then the Tim Burton movie, obviously, which was a couple well, of years that's, after Dark yeah, that's sort of the point, isn't it? Until Frank Miller did this, Batman was was lame, right? He was kind of a, yeah. it was a joke. They'd hit somebody, they'd do the pow, and the, yeah. they'd yeah. kick somebody in and say wham, or something like that, right? And they tried to make it like a comic book. I, I You know, it's a fun show. It's a stupid show. Yeah. But, no, I, used to um, like I used to like it when I was a kid. It's just, but, but, you know. But it wasn't, yeah, he wasn't cool. And then Frank Miller comes along, and he's like, yeah. I'm going to do this different. You know, they call this the dark age of comics. Did you know that in the, in the eighties? It's when comics became dark, when they became mature. Essentially. Oh, oh, I thought you were, yeah. Okay. I got it. And it, they, they, Was this they the say, first one, though? see the Watchmen came out the same year. Watchmen. As, I actually looked that up. The Watchmen is later. In it's year. later in the year. Yeah. But they came out the same year. So they both came out in 86. Yeah. But they, they, those two, are both credited side by side as as issuing in this sort of dark age of comics and by dark they mean comics become dark now right they're no longer silly they're no longer trying to appeal to eight-year-olds they they become right like, they're, for, they're for adults yeah, for adult serious, comic book readers. yeah i think in the 60s people would have just what do you mean adult comic book reader yeah but it, yeah is this person an idiot why, why would right. an adult read comic books you know <clears throat> that's how they started you know which is kind of miller's point you know they started in the 30s and 40s you know batman carried a gun very few people know that but like um he carried a, he carried a 45 and shot people when yeah. he first when he first came out he uses a gun in this that yeah that in the yeah, that was all. No, not just the. There's a couple of guns. He uses an M60. Picks up a gun when he's fighting the Joker. Shoots it. Shoots at the. But he uses it to shoot like the gasoline to set it yeah. off. I guess or something yeah. like. Yeah. Oh, that's right. But, yeah, he um, does that. That was the rival for maybe being my biggest surprise, but that's not what I ended up choosing. So yeah, I thought that was strange that he used. I remember people talking about how the original Detective Comics he used to use a gun. But yeah, I've never yeah, seen. He carried a pistol. I, I had a digest, like a you know, obviously multi-reprint mm -hmm. but i had a digest of it was like a 40-year anniversary or something and you know it's it really interesting he, it was it was pretty dark okay so a friend of mine collects comic books and this uh -huh. guy he, he's a he's a, a gi surgeon and so he's doing pretty well for himself and, and he's been collecting comics since we were kids uh matter of fact when we were friends and 12 years old we would go and collect comics and stuff he still has all his comics that we collected but obviously now he has a bigger billfold and he can collect even more 
His sure. thing happens to be World War II and Korean War era war comics. And he's like one of those major collectors, like auction houses call him and say, hey, we have a buyer for this particular issue of this particular comic book. We know that you have it. He's willing uh-huh. to give you this much for it. Like they'll, they'll call him and ask him for it. He bought, he was turned on to, from inside information, he was turned on to an estate sale. And uh-huh. he ended up buying multiple issues of war comics. And they were like late 30s, early 40s, owned by Dick Winter from Band of Brothers. The oh, yeah, okay. major, major Richard Winters, the original, you know, the, the guy in Easy Company that they made the movie about. And it actually has his autograph, like he wrote on it, you know, property of, of Dick Winters. So if you think about it, Dick Winters was an adult when he was reading these comics. He was, you know, in his late teens, at least, if not early 20s, because he was an officer. So he went to officer candidate school. And so he would have been in his 20s and 44. So he was probably reading these in, you know, early 40s and late 30s. My point of all this is that comic books, they were an adult entertainment. I mean, there there were the kids, I think, Popeye and some of the others, but but it wasn't looked down on, you know. You know, Captain America fought the Nazis. One of the, Miller's Miller was trying to get back to that. He was trying to say, look, this is kind of where they come from. This is where I want them to be again. Well, it was a good idea. I mean, I would say probably today most comic book readers are probably adults. I think it's <clears> not <throat> a huge thing for kids. For one thing, because it's expensive. They don't have twenty-five yeah. cent, fifty cent comics anymore. They're they're a pretty significant purchase. Like. Right. I've I've taken Alex to the comic book store a couple of times and he's gotten stuff and it's like he has to choose to you know it's five or six dollars to get a comic yeah. for the most but in, oh good for one. sure easily I have to be like I don't want to just have him buy that and then just tear it into shreds like what a kid would do <laughs> yeah. with something so I have yeah to did I ever tell you I used to work at a comic book store when I was in college no. you never you never brought that up yeah. you even talked about Silver Surfer you never talked about that yeah I worked at a comic book store. When I was in college and I was working behind the counter and the phone rang one day and I pick up the phone and the guy on the phone, it asks for the manager of the store. And I was like, yeah, can I tell him who's calling? And he says, it's Frank. And I was like, Frank who? And he's like, Frank no. Miller. And I'm like, I'm like, what? Like Frank Miller? And he was like, yeah, I'm coming to do a signing for like 300. Like Holy cow. 300 came out. I was just like, I was just like completely flabbergasted. Wow. I was like, I can't believe I'm talking to Greg Miller on the phone. So it was, it was uh, one of my biggest. Did, okay. So did, did you go to the, did you go to the signing and did you get the. I have 300, the original one signed by Frank Miller. Oh man. Oh, okay. It's one, of uh, my, I'm, it's one of my best comics that I yeah, own. It is, I'm, it is the best comic I own. So I'm bowing down to, to him, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let's just get into that. I mean, I don't think many comic book. Artists or writers are giving their due, given their due credit, right? Mm-hmm. Stan Lee, for example, you know he was looked at as kind of an icon, but it was more of an icon for pop culture, not for art. Like we have Stephen King, who's Stephen King? Oh, he's a writer, he's an author, mm-hmm. you know, he's an artist. Who's Stan Lee? Oh, he he ran Marvel. Stephen King has a similar reputation, though, where he sort of is um, any serious literary writers, they're going to sort of look down on his work. And well, I think it's true. But I think like if there's a, if a grain elevator of seriousness, like like at the very top might be Rembrandt or Hemingway or something like that. And, and you've got scales that go down. Yeah. I, I think Stephen King is above Stan Lee. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's like he, so, yeah. he's I think Stan, Stan Lee, had, his reputation has increased over time because it's just right. seen 
he's like Walt Disney. He's just seen as this huge figure in American pop culture. You know, he's just even right. though you read the history of Marvel, Stanley's sort of taking credit for some of the things that some other people right. did. Like, <laughs> right. I mean, he's definitely responsible for a lot of it, but I think he gets right. a little more credit. It's sort of like Walt Disney. Did Walt Disney really create a lot of stuff himself? Sort of. He's definitely involved right. in it. Sort of the business brains behind a lot of it, but right. he drew Mickey Mouse. Well, that you know, I mean, Ub Iwerks, I think, has more more Oscars than Walt Disney had, if I remember correctly. Could could the could the I'm going to say Man on the Street because that's what they've always called it. Let's say the Zay could the Zay on the Street uh, ever like come up with the name of one Disney animator? Not, I mean, oh. just one, right? And they'll say uh, they'd say Walt Disney. Well, Walt Disney right. never animated anything. Yeah. Stanley's kind of like that. Like Stanley, yeah, he did start out. If if you know the story of Marvel, you know that he sort of fell into this management position because nobody right. else wanted it, and they're about to go bankrupt. So, and he he kind of saw it through. Sort of bring it back to Frank Miller, though. I wanted to ask you. So he does the penciling for this. He does all the drawing for this. I've got in the back of my book here is a whole bunch of his original sketches, like from yeah. from putting the book together. What do you think of his drawing? Because I I loved this when I was a kid. I mean, I read it over and over again. But there's yeah. definitely some of the artwork in here that I don't think is very good. He had he had a I mean he has some of it, it is style. Some of it is stylistic. I remember right. the, the scenes where Superman is like carrying the nuclear weapon and gets like turned into like a skeleton afterwards. Yeah. I hate yeah. the way that looked. I thought it was great. Have you? But, okay, but, so, but, it, so, but it was a style. But it was a style, and I and, and it's like now I kind of appreciate it. I think it looks kind of cool. But I just it bothered yeah. me. Superman depicted well, that how, way. Okay, so let me ask you this. Okay, so you've got three hundred, and and honestly, I hate to say it, I don't have three hundred, but I have Electro Assassin. Um, I have yeah. Wolverine. I have his Daredevils. I have Ronan. That's cool. I actually, I actually have original <laughs> the the full original Electra assassin miniseries and i have a full ronin miniseries i would love to get him signed by him that would be my dream but in any case but if you have you if you've seen either one of those like the artwork is it becomes like especially in electra it becomes much more abstract than this yeah like this is this is tame and then like in electra you've got like almost cubism or something like that at some point yeah. where you're like what is that supposed to be you know um, I like I like some of the um, some of the abstract stuff, but there there's some of them. Some of the way he's drawing the for, the human forms, it looks like it's poorly done. Some of them, like especially like I said, the um, the mutant leader. There's a, there's a couple of drawings. Wow. This this one where the mutant leader is like standing on the pile of junk, and I'm like, what kind of body is that? <laughs> what is going on with his body in that, right. in that call? But it's like everything else looks so cool. The, the the tank Batmobile looks pretty neat in that same sequence. There's a really good bit of Batman, like this one where he's getting ready for the fist fight with with the mutant. Oh yeah, guys. I see. Okay, so I see that. So all right, so he um he actually said uh, he had a <laughs> yeah the mutant leader's got like one nipple popping yeah. out, or is that a yeah, spike? Yeah. I don't know what that is. But yeah, I don't goes. know what's going on in yeah. that drawing. Yeah. It's, it's, so um, so he. Okay, so he he has said, like his belief is that comic book artists should not pursue realism. Like that's the last thing they should do. Right. He's trying he's trying to bridge a gap between a book where it's all you know it's all mental, it's all your imagination, and a visual, 
right? And so what he's doing is he's he's giving you sort of a cue. He's not giving you a photograph. He's giving you, this is sort of what it looks like. Now you fill in the gap. You figure out what it should smell like and taste like and, and, and really look like, like you detail it yourself, right? He's trying to fill in a gap between just pure text and imagination. I think, I mean, that's sort of what he does. Like if you look at that, that one particular drawing, you've got these silhouettes behind them. You've got like this just just pencil outline of, of the skyline of, of Gotham. This just kind of, it almost looks like a quick sketch of this weird looking mutant guy. It looks like a mutant. I'll, I'll give that to him. Yeah. And then under him, you've got this kind of nondescript pile of like car axles and just junk, right? You don't know what it is. Or a famous quote by, by Picasso. And I think we've, we've talked about this before. We've done We've done enough episodes now that I can't remember what all we've talked about. But um, Picasso was like 12 years old. He entered a, an art contest and he and he painted a portrait of a, a sick woman in a bed and a doctor attending to the sick woman. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, but you can look it up and Google it. And it's all real. He used realism. I mean, that that's what that was his pursuit at the time. And it's amazing. Uh, his mom happens to be the woman in bed and the doctor, I think is his father, he uses his father's kind of likeness for that. It is real. I mean, it's like all of the realist paintings, you know, so this would have been, you know, mid to late 1800s. And it's, it's amazing. At 12 years old, he could do that. By the time he passed away, like in his 90s, so in the mid 1900s, you know, he's making blocks, right? And I mean, cubism and very abstract and everything else. And his his quote was, when I was a child, I had to learn to paint like an adult so that when I was an adult, I could paint like a child. Right. And I think that's sort of what Miller is doing. I mean, Miller, if you look at his early stuff, it, he is totally realist. I mean, it's amazing. But okay. this, you know, this, you look, you look at it, and you're like, man, a five-year-old could do that, right? But there's something else to it. There's a there's a layer to it. Like he's doing it intentionally, and that's the point. I tell my students that all the time. Uh, you know, I, I teach composition, and there's this whole movement that to the, to like students should be able to write whatever they want and however they want. And I push back on this this theory. You know, students can do that once they understand the rules. Yeah, I totally basic agree. rules. You know, and then you can do whatever you want. You can break those rules, but you have to know why you're oh. breaking them. Which, you know? Because when somebody says to you, you know, oh, you used the wrong tense for this right here, you have to be able to say, yes, that's a conscious decision. I decided not to do exactly. that. Exactly. Exactly. I know. Exactly. I know yeah. what the is. Otherwise, you sound like an idiot if you don't yeah, know. That's it. exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's exactly right. Wrong, you know? that's, that's totally exactly right. That's that's exactly. Very similar. Very similar. Yeah. You can't really yeah. deconstruct what was never constructed in the first place. That's exactly. Exactly. And so what he's doing is he's. And this this actually lines up for, with postmodernism. So 1986, you're in the throes mm -hmm. of postmodernism at that time. I think Don Henley had a, a postmod. What it's a postmodern modern world or whatever was the name of that stupid song that came out oh. probably about that time. Like this is the this is the era of postmodernism. You know, 70s, 80s. We've got Derrida, we've got Foucault, you got all you know all these postmodern. French theorists. So that's what he's doing. He's deconstructing. That's what you do is you, you deconstruct whatever it happens to be. And so he's deconstructing it. Um, he's deconstructing uh, art. It's really kind of interesting because you know, we, going back to Disney, Disney started doing this in like the 60s. Are you familiar with the movie uh, Aristoc 
Aristocats. I think it's Aristocats. Yeah. And then Aristocats. like Lady in the Yeah, Lady Lady in the Tramp. And basically think back to like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? Do you remember uh-huh. how like how like like every leaf was painted green and and like all yeah. the l- little animals were doing their thing, whatever. Okay. And it was all that was realism, right? And then flash forward to the 60s. And then you had, if you look at like the Aristocats and you look like Lady in the Trap and stuff, and uh, even 101 Dalmatians, they just got like an outline of like the skyline of a city. Like they don't yeah. even try to fill it in. They've got like hashes and stuff like that. And that was just this, this kind of abstract. If you're being generous to them, you say that that's a stylistic choice. And if you're not, you're saying it's cheap not to have it really well. <laughs> no, it was, they were, no, yeah. it, it was, it was, I think it was complimentary on both. Yeah, what I mean, it was like, it was like one led to the other. Disney hated it. He absolutely hated it. But by the sixties, he was pretty much out as, as controlling Disney. So he had, he didn't really have a say, but. Um, well, one of my favorite things about the artwork in this is like, so I kind of, sometimes some of the drawing, like I said, it, it's not, sometimes it throws me off a little bit, but the, the composition of some of these big drawings in this is mm-hmm. terrific. It's like shots that stayed in my head for the rest of my life. And like when they did the film of Sin City and when they did the film of yeah. 300, they were able to just take things that Frank Miller had done on the page and literally use it like it was a storyboard for a film. Yeah. And I, I'm, surpri- I'm surprised this was never really done as a film. It seems to me like kind of a no-brainer to try to film I, this. They, they, I think it's they use aspects of it in many, many things. But in terms of like a feature film, it's inspired a lot of stuff in the modern Batman movies, but they never yeah. did like a just the Dark Knight Returns film. Probably because it would be confusing in terms of the timeline and stuff like that, because they're trying to build their own universe. I don't know. I mean, they're so is it DC? Yeah, DC Warner Brothers. They're just stupid. I, I think they think that people are stupid. That the best they really seem to be playing catch up. I mean, except for the Batman films, everything else just seems like a cheap version. Like a like a second mover version right. of Marvel. They they keep saying like, oh, they'll never understand that. Like you you know, fans will never go for that, or fans will never understand that. But like, no, you just you just start. You know, you just you got to start somewhere. And the best grossing DC movie was this last one. What's really insane about it? I was talking to Alex about this the other day when when I was mentioning we were going to do this book. And mm-hmm. what's crazy about it is if you put together the five most popular comic book characters of all time. I think you get to number three or four before you hit a Marvel. Batman and Superman are huge. They're, yeah, they're bigger yeah, than those, 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 right. Spider-Man, right. Spider-Man probably comes in in the top five, and that's probably Marvel's top character. And they didn't even have him in the MCU when they started making the right. MCU. That's a crazy thing. They didn't have Fantastic Four, X-Men, or Spider-Man, the top properties. They had right. Captain America, which, like, that's nowhere near as popular as Batman. Maybe it is now. No, that, that that's not no. true because they remember they came out with they came out with X Men before Captain America. But it wasn't. It, it was. It, it was. Uh, I don't know. Sony or somebody did those. I can't. Oh, that's right. Fox. It was Sony. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're, you're actually right. I can't remember the whole complicated thing. They. I mean, they still haven't introduced the X Men into the MCU yet. Probably why they made so many X Men movies, but. We think of DC as being sort of a secondhand thing, like like the cheaper the the films just seem like a, a knockoff version. But right. Batman and Superman are the biggest thing. They're, they're right. bigger than you can imagine. Batman, Batman's been very successful yeah. in the films. That's so that's yeah. that's aside. Those movies, those Christopher Nolan movies are huge. But Superman right. hasn't made a good movie since Superman two. 
That's true. No, that no was, you're you're right. Like, I, I I would I would venture to guess, like as a property, like intellectual property, I would bet Batman and Superman would probably actually individually, individually, each one of those are worth as much as all the Avengers. Because think of all you could do oh, with it, right? Although maybe I, I think so. Now, uh, these big films well, that may not be true, but that was definitely well, true before. Well, the I think they're 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 figuring that out with Batman because you've got you've got Joker as a as a spinoff franchise now, right. and I think they're making a second one or whatever. Um, you've got Harley Quinn, so you could you could have these these different spinoffs and explore all kinds of weird stuff. They tried to do that. Justice League was terrible, right? It was just terrible. It was it's just terrible. But yeah. but. Uh, You've got the potential, though, if you reboot it and do it well and get rid of like Ben Affleck, you know, you know, you've got <laughs> you've got you've got the Flash, you've got Aquaman. I mean, you've got a lot of like top tier characters. They're um, huge characters. Wonder yeah. Woman. Wonder Woman know, was great. The first, but see, the first Wonder the first Woman one was great. Yep. But 1984 sucked. You know? It's okay. I watch it with my kids. The kids liked it. I, when you have a little girl, Wonder Woman's just. You're gonna like Wonder Woman. Yeah, I guess so. So I want to talk about. So I want to ask you. So is is Frank Miller an artist? Like, what do you think of him? What do you What do you think of just Frank Miller? I say Frank Miller. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, he's an artist. I think to me. So if he just was drawing things faithfully, somebody told him what to draw and he drew it, then maybe you could say that that's not an artist. But even then, I think you're still making choices and things like that, and making creative decisions. So, I mean, yeah, definitely an artist. It's just a question of where does he stand? Would I rather look at his work than Basquiat's? Yes. <laughs> but I don't know if that means, I don't know if I really think he's a better artist. You know, well, I just. How about, how about Jackson Pollock? Is your other work? <laughs> I like Jackson. I, I get what Jackson Pollock's doing more so than I do with Basquiat. But um, so, but yeah, obviously I enjoy, I don't know, those huge canvases and everything, like, kind of <laughs> not the way you them, those are yeah. pretty cool. This is I like that Batmobile thing, stuff like that, like the shots with with the lightning behind Batman jumping and stuff like that. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. It's cinematic, is what it is. And it it's, really um, is. Yeah, he he thinks he thinks like a he thinks like a director, doesn't he? Uh huh. I mean, like, he sort of like lays things out like his, and that's kind of the cool thing about about comic books is like every panel could be like a shot. This if we were to shoot this as a film. Like, that's the shot I want. That's the shot I want. That's the shot I want. He's clearly an artist who's been informed by film. Whereas I think like if you go back to the Marvel comic stuff, the Fantastic Four stuff we were talking about, those are drawn mm -hmm. differently than you would for a film. Oh, God, yeah. They're there's, shot, there's shots where everybody's just kind of standing there and not doing anything. <laughs> yeah. And it was it was its own art form. And it's cool. Like, I'm not I'm not right. knocking it. But this is somebody who grew up watching movies from the time right. he was a little kid and in this in his mind he's creating a film i do and, that with my writing i have okay. i have trouble that with, with that one I, I get i accidentally give stage directions and things and like say how i want the person to accent the line and i'm like i gotta cut that just let the reader do it for yeah. themselves it's right i'm not writing a script and even if you were writing a script you don't put that much stage direction into the script so it's because right. i grew up on films and to some extent that's really the genre that i love is creating films but don't have the opportunity to do it. So right. uh, I, I think there's a little bit going on with that with Frank Miller. I think he's sort of like that. Yeah, he is. Although he does, he does like, he it is sort of minimalist, you know, I mean, he, he'll have like, he'll have yes, transitions. 
how I've transitioned yep. from one panel to the next, where it's like there was a lot that was missed in that panel. You know, there's a a pretty prominent book about comic book writing. This is a good drink, by the way. I like this. Yeah, it's I not bad, had a, right? I've had a screwdriver in a long time, but it's a good drink. I yeah, like orange juice. Orange juice, you know, so it's nice. I, I didn't get fresh orange juice. It's just, you know, Minute made out of a plastic bottle, but... I can't find it. But there's there's a book on comic book theory, okay? Oh, okay. I, I can't remember the, the name of it. We should... I'll, 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 I'll let you know if you put it in the comments or whatever down in the description. I think Murray is the is the name of the guy. He um he but he he talks about like what happens between panels, like mm -hmm. like there there is if you think about it there is a there's narrative happening between the panels right and if you look at a comic book you'll you'll have like say you know you'll have Batman facing left right and he'll say something and then all of a sudden in the next one he's facing right and he'll say right. something okay so between the panel was that transition from him either him facing left to right or the perspective or the changing camera, from left to right. Camera moving. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. So between the panel is where our imagination is. Right. Right. So you have a panel, it says all this stuff, and then another panel, and and we have to fill in that gap. I think Miller over anything else, I think that might be, if you think about it, if you go back and look at it, that might be where his mastery lies. Like because he he'll have he'll have a panel. And then he'll have another panel that has nothing to do with the previous like four panels. There's just some bits in here where the writing is powerful. And I, I wish that I had written it down a little bit, but there's a couple of lines. Well, in 300 is a good, there's a whole bunch of stuff that just translated right from the page into the film. And it's a terrific line in the movie, you know, like things yeah. like, you know, the, the part where he kicks the guy into the well and stuff like that. There's, there's, there's some bits like that in here where, He's first coming back, like he first comes back. Oh, there's the bit where he he goes after some bad guys and the old cop just kind of stops the car and he's like, oh, oh sit yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. Sit yeah. back, kid, we're in for a show. Apparently somebody yeah. took that and put it in one of the Batman movies. They took that line and stuck it into one of the movies. Mm -hmm. I don't remember which one. Maybe it's Dark Knight. Yeah, I that's the remember. first one. For, that, that's the first Chris Nolan one. Yeah. No, the, fir the first one is Batman Begins. Oh, that's right. Uh, no, I think there, I think there's one called The Dark Knight Rises. Hmm, that's it. Dark that's, a, that's, a, that's the second one. I thought so. You're talking about what he does in between the panels as being one of his best, one of his biggest strengths. I'm mentioning the writing. I think the writing is terrific a lot of the time. Oh, it one, is. One really interesting choice that he makes here uh -huh. is that in a comic book, when you need to do exposition, you can just put a box of text into a panel and tell people right. what's happening. You know, it's this day. Right. And he completely doesn't do that. He yeah. instead takes these talking heads from TV and has right. them give broadcasts on what's happening all over the city and stuff. And I think that's brilliant. I love that. I think that's really effective. It's sort of, it's part of what's wrong with this world is like the media is run rampant and stuff like that. Right. Hard to believe anybody was ever worried about like, you know, cable TV, but there you have it. Well, that, that, there was a, at the time there was a, um, there was a show called, I think it was called Crossfire. That was sort of like one of the first naval, uh, cable cable news shows where somebody, they would just sit there and like argue back and forth. Uh -huh. And so he, he sort of riffs on on that. But I think at the time it was sort of new. Yeah, I think it was. But, but what, was the name of that, what was the name of that guy? Morton Downey? Does that sound yeah, Morton, familiar? Yeah, yeah. Morton Downey, yeah. He yeah. was like the first really like sort of shock 
like shock jock type of TV guy. He would just like mm-hmm. say, I don't even remember watching it. But I just remember him being a big part of the culture, like around. I would uh, say actually like Mer- Merv Griffin actually before that. Okay. So uh, let's talk real quick. Cause we're actually buttoned up against uh, our time here. Yeah. Well, let's talk, talk a little bit about uh, legacy. Mm-hmm. I saw, yeah, that's going to be, you know, when I, after I went back and reread this, because I, I don't think I'd read this in, since the eighties. Okay. I went back and reread it. And yeah. And then when I was reading it, I was like, oh, that's in the Batman movie. And oh, that's in that movie. And oh, that's in that movie. Like him falling through a hole and then all the bats coming. Okay. That's in, that's in the, in the Chris Nolan. Batman Begins probably. Batman Begins. Right. I think that the character of Alfred was pretty much across a spectrum replicated from this, this book. You've got the bat cave. I mean, it's just so much that that is then replicated. They they took pieces and parts from it. There um, was a there was a really cool drawing of the bat cave that predated this that I had when I was a little kid. It was in one of one of these books that I had, and it was just like there was a dinosaur skeleton and like fighter jets. It looked like a museum. Yeah, and I, yeah, I, I remember, remember that. Looking, yeah. I would look at that picture like over and over again. I was just like, oh, the bat cave yeah, is so. That. Like that's what I want in yeah. my house. So that's an old uh, one, yeah. That that's a very old one because that was a really, really, really cool one. Because I remember that one, yeah. But but I was just looking at like all the things that were then used from this, and then mm-hmm. used like in the Batman movie. So that's like I think one piece of legacy. One other concrete legacy, like when he fights Superman and he has mm-hmm. that suit. That oh, he right. wears that suit in like in the Batman versus Superman movie. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's, just, that's, just yeah. A, that's just a minor observation I'm making. But yeah. I did want to bring up, and before we get to the end of the show, I did want to bring up something. One complaint I read somebody had about this that completely reflected a problem I had in the back of my head and had to put together was mm-hmm. the Batman Superman fight is pretty contrived. I don't really understand why that happens. I don't understand why when Batman has just saved the city after the nuclear war, mm-hmm. why all of a sudden the government's going after him. What did he do to set off the government? He seems to be on their radar for no reason. Now, I love the Superman-Batman fight. It's mm-hmm. awesome. So I never really complained about it. But I was reading it this time and I was like, this is a little deus ex. This is, this is not really explained by what's going on yeah. in the text. It's just... This just happens. Okay, so this is my understanding of it. So again, he's being prophetic. I think it seems to me that the politicians, because it's Reagan that that decides that, the politicians are bending to the will of the people, like what's in the air. So it's not whether it's good or bad. It's you have these talking heads on TV that say he's bad and therefore he should be rounded up and stopped. Okay. And so, therefore, they need to go after him and, and stop him. Again, it, it is fairly prescient. It's looking at a time when public opinion sways political choices uh, or mandates, I guess you could call it, you know, whatever you want to call it. You know, and that, I think that's sort of what it is. So, it's, it's you, when you have the talking heads, you've got the Lana, Lana Lang, you know, who's mm-hmm. the, the editor of uh, whatever it's uh, yeah, the Daily Planet. Daily Planet, yeah. So uh, you've got Lana Lang versus whatever that other guy's name was. And then you got like that kind of the man in the street interviews and they're like talking about how bad he is and blah, blah, blah. You know, but, but the funny thing is like, you're right. It's, it's all satire because you've got this jerk who's talking about 
how I'm going to sue him and everything else. And he gave me right. a broken leg. And a, but, you know, it was all because he was a complete DB. And yes. Alex, don't look up beyond, DB. Beyond that, right? beyond that, like sort of a murderer. Another thing I really like about that fight, and it's illustrative of something I like about the entire comic, was one of my favorite things reading it when I was a kid. Because I was not a huge comic reader. So I really liked how everything was kind of hinted at and you were sort of assumed to be able to figure out sort of the DC universe. Uh -huh. in, in the fight with Superman, he has Green Arrow show up, shoot Superman with an arrow, mm -hmm. and he mentions how it took him a really long time to synthesize it. They never say kryptonite. They never right. mention that it's green kryptonite. They don't have to. Yeah, they don't have because, to. Because you're, it's left up. To, I mean, Stan Lee would yeah. 100% have somebody standing there going, this is kryptonite and Superman, that is brokenness, you know? Yeah, right, 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 right. I think that's great. I'd love to have to figure that. I loved how they would refer to, like, Catwoman is never mentioned. Catwoman's yeah. in, you know, but they yeah. use her alter ego name. And I loved mm -hmm. that as a kid. I was like, oh, I know who that is. I know who Selena Well, Tyler just, just at know? the very end, when you have the, the heartbeat, mm -hmm. all of a sudden you hit, see the little thing and you see Clark can't turn. He's like, huh? But that the whole heartbeat thing that Clark Kent hears. I mean, that's just brilliant yeah, that's because great. they, they, they do, they do the little heartbeat monitor, you know, yeah. and they don't and say, they, they don't Superman. say there's Superman no word with his super hearing. You yeah. have to, know there, there's no, there's absolutely no text on that page at all. If you think there's about it, you go, go look at that page. No text. Superman challenges Batman to a fight <laughs> by, by yeah. using heat vision to blast, you know, where into yeah. the ground. Yeah. And it's not, he's not even in the shot. You just see the yeah. work written on the ground and fire. Yeah. And if you don't know Superman has heat vision, yeah. you don't know what the heck's going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who's reading this that doesn't know that? Yeah. You know? Like that's pretty basic Superman information. So I, yeah. I love, I, I thought that's one of my favorite things about these books. All the characters coming together and it's mostly their non-superhero lives that you see. You mostly right. see them as their like regular street personas, you know, like we, Green Arrow's in it just as as like Oliver Reed or whatever the heck his yeah, name is. Oliver, yeah, Oliver, yeah. Oliver Reed's not right. That's the that's the medical center in DC, but yeah. it's Oliver something. I don't remember Oliver Stone or whatever. Nope, that's not. <laughs> it that's not it either. <laughs> Oliver, anyway. Oliver something other. Yeah. So you hadn't read this in a long time, and I think we're at about the right time in the show. Did you have a biggest surprise when you reread this? I did, but, okay. but what's yours? You want me to go? For, okay. Yeah, I'll let you go first. So my biggest surprise is I had this conversation a lot of the time when I was a kid, you know, does Batman have superpowers? And I finally came down to the conclusion. It's sort of that. Yeah, he does. His superpower is that he is richer than anybody really is. You know, he has more money and more resources than any actual person could ever have. That's his superpower. Right. Uh, but reading this, I think in this one, I think Batman has supernatural powers in this. I think that that makes him younger, gives him the will to fight. It makes him lucky in combat and things like that. I think he actually has superpowers in this, in this version. I think he's got some kind of supernatural inspiration from the spirit of this bat creature. Yeah. Because remember his mustache disappears? Yeah, right. He suddenly yeah. looks a lot younger and stuff like that. I, I think there's something going on. I think there is a supernatural element to this. So I think in this version, Batman does have some some version of superpower, similar to Black Panther, actually. Hmm. It's like he's got the spirit of this bat in him that makes him have superpowers. You know, something that we didn't explore is, is Batman's psychoses. 
which, uh -huh. which I think this, I think Miller really kind of explores uh -huh. like, about him. Oh, it's more like just PTSD. You know, yeah. yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, he totally. Yeah, absolutely. He's completely traumatized and he's got whatever disorders mm -hmm. and they're manifesting. He gets triggered by a late night showing of Zorro. Yeah, that's right. Right. Because that's, 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 that's the show that he watched. When, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, and also, and also the whole character of Batman is fired. Well, and, and like I said, we never, we never talked about that, but, but that's something that, that, that Miller really kind of explores is like how he was traumatized as a kid and he carries his trauma through as, as an adult and it kind of manifests itself as the Batman. And so the Batman is then a manifested version. Of, I mean, it's something, it's, it's a mental issue, right? Yeah, definitely. So, uh, okay. So. He actually turns it around, I think, if you think about it, a pretty positive way to use that trauma. If you think about it, it makes him a very functional person in some ways. I guess in, sometimes he gets depicted as being a little crazier, and sometimes it's pretty functional. And Anyway, so um, I think I've probably given away my opinion on this. I don't think that this okay. is like... This oh, wait, is wait, wait, like wait, wait, hold on, hold on. I have to do my, oh, okay. uh, my biggest sorry. surprise. Sorry. Yeah, my okay. biggest surprise. Oh, I thought, I thought so, you were... Yeah. No, no, ahead. no. So, so my my biggest surprise. So my vocation is is technical communication. That's what I, I got my bachelor's, master's, basically in, and and uh, and and so uh, all that geeky stuff would would probably come to play anywhere. I found out that Vincent Conner, who is a designer, yeah. uh, a graphic designer, was inspired. Who worked for Microsoft in the nineteen eighties was inspired by Batman Returns or The Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen when he created Comic Sans font. Oh, uh, yeah. I love that. Yeah, <laughs> I love that. And I actually went back and I looked and I have Watchmen and I looked at this and you look at the lettering on it and it is Comic Sans. And it's like, really apparently the, it's apparently the first time it ever appeared. And so when he went, when he created that font for Microsoft, he used Dark Knight and Watchmen as the basis. So I was like, that's funny. That, that's fantastic. I love it. Now I know the that's origin great. of that from my students and my, and I, even my kids, because I know how I feel about that, about that silly font. That's, that's a good biggest surprise. I did read that and I, I, I forgot to write it down. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it's a good one. <laughs> so, well, I, you know, it's just so apropos uh, based on what I do. So. Uh, mm -hmm. I'll be able to tell all my students that and they'll all, I mean, they'll, they're, they're all asleep anyway, so none of them will care. But in any case, yeah, that's it. So, uh, all right. So now we get back to the point where you say this is the, this is a genius and, and, and Pat me on the back for picking it. I had this, um, this came out as a graphic novel reprint around the time of the Tim Burton movie. And I got it. I think I got it at Costco or what they used to call it price club but yeah, it was like yeah, one of those yeah. that was out. I used to have great graphic novels i got ninja turtles and batman all kinds of good stuff there um but i had this i read it over and over again i was super into batman that summer and like i have i hadn't read it in years and years so really the only question was whether i was still gonna like it but um i took cleo out to brooklyn and i just read this all the way back on the train and i was like that train ride went by like in a snap which is yeah. just the perfect time to read, read is on the train. A graphic novel is a great thing to have while you're 
I'm actually going to do Sandman now and read that while I'm on the train. Yeah, yeah, so, pretty cool. Yeah. I, I mean, I just loved reading this again. I thought this was just as good as I remember it being, just as entertaining as I remember it being. I would recommend this if somebody was only going to read four or five graphic novels. I might give them this. You know, if they're going to read, I don't know a whole lot of Batman, but I would certainly point somebody to this if they haven't read any Batman either. So yeah, this definitely gets my vote. This is one of my favorite. Sweet. We we should start. We should actually start keeping tally. We like, should. We should. But we know? almost always vote in favor. It was, well, we yeah, talking about. I was talking to the guys on the last show, and my friend Joe said something about how since he only could vote yes or no, that he always votes yes. And I'm saying, well, you're voting whether you're not voting whether it's good. You're voting whether it's a classic. Like mm-hmm. I can. I can completely unequivocally say this is a classic graphic novel. This is this is one of the best of the genre, you know. But some of these other things, I you know, I there. It's not that I hate them if I don't think they're a classic, but they're just not right. a classic. And I think we voted sure. a couple of things down, but for the I think we're something. Yeah. Like, I think we're like eighty percent that we vote. Probably, yeah, yeah, at least yeah, so, that's a good point. It would yeah. be interesting to go back and and do a tally. Maybe I'll do that between shows next time, and I'll have it. I'll have the data ready. We have a listener out there who wants to send something to toasting the classics at gmail.com. That would be pretty fun. Yeah, and do that for us. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, that'd be great. So, all um, right, man. Well, I, I think we're good. I think this one's going into the toasting the classics canon. Uh, we've done what two comic things now, right? Yeah, so I think so. Yeah, this and uh, fantastic for you. Cool. So, anyway, yeah, I think I think we'll go ahead and sign off. This is uh, Dave MacArthur. This is Clinton here. Peace out, everybody. See you next time. Bye. See ya. That's it for episode 61 of Toasting the Classics. For those playing along at home, get some sake for our discussion of the original kaiju film, Godzilla. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email at toastingtheclassics at gmail.com. Send us show ideas, comments, complaints, and let us know your pick on the old Dark Knight Returns versus the Watchmen debate. Check out my blog at theattractivenuisance.com and follow us on Twitter at @attractivenuisance. Our music was written by Michelle MacArthur. See you next time on Toasting the Classics. Thank you.